Investigating listening practices and extractive industries in Australia, Kwandamuka artist Megan Cope's untitled Death Song comprises of sound sculptures constructed from discarded mining and industrial equipment, accompanied by a soundtrack made in collaboration with musician and instrument builder Isharam Das. It takes its first note from the haunting cries of the yellow-eyed bushstone curlew, an endangered species within New South Wales known for its distinctive call, a ghost-like weirlow sound. Presented at Art Gallery South Australia and later at UNSW Galleries, groups of performers were engaged to sound the work, drawing the call of the curlew out of the industrial instruments using a range of extended musical techniques. In doing so, Cope directs our listening towards the deathly vibrations of extraction, expropriation and extinction wrought by these tools and those who wield them. Excerpts of these performances are presented here alongside reflections and experiences from Isha Ramdas and performers Georgia Oatley and Sonia Hollowell. I'm Isha Ramdas. I'm a composer and sound artist. And I worked on this project with Megan, um, helping to kind of uh, guide some of the practical elements of and the musical elements of of making this work happen. So Megan approached me like midway through 2019 um, and she she had a really clear idea of, of, of some of the kind of mechanics of how these instruments might work and a really clear uh, like um, conceptual and aesthetic aesthetic vision kind of for the work. So she had like a series of um, sketches and a previous work of hers had used the string and the the hanging rock um, feature and so kind of from there it was like going from her designs and her artistic vision and really just kind of figuring out like what practically what practical steps that could be taken to to like from that to actually having something that makes a sound so there was like quite an extensive I guess like research phase um Megan had like a lot of the materials already and had sourced them from from different places um she also had like you know a big kind of husk of a upright piano that we stripped for parts and and things like that and so it was kind of just like coming to a certain kind of like how do we how do we amplify the sound of the strings or how can we how can we make these like uh with the materials i guess like as kind of close to this like megan's original vision as possible So the five instruments are 
large objects made from decommissioned uh, agricultural and earth moving um, equipment. So big like farming augers and um, also another key feature is there's um, rocks that have been sourced from the um, South Australian Geological Museum. Um, as well as strings and, um, from violins and guitars and other stringed instruments. And they kind of form this uh, ensemble, these five instruments um, that are really designed to kind of replicate the call of the bushstone curlew. Each instrument kind of serves, a, you know, a similar function, but um, there is like a, the main thing is really that the strings are being, the tension is being held by these rocks. And so the pitch of the string is, is made up by the weight of the rock. And you, you don't really have much necessarily control over, over what that pitch is. And so it's kind of like the performers and all the, the musicians are really just kind of conduits to what that, that rock is doing. I had a realization that it was really about like not trying to control like to kind of seed control to the to the objects and to the stones particularly especially i think coming from like a technical perspective and like a, like a really practical musical perspective it was like how can i make this as like predictable as possible and so there was like a point in time where i was you know researching like cutting the strings to a certain length and placing them with a certain rock so that we could achieve something that would be specific in that way. And Megan was just like, there's no need to do that. <laughs> like, it's it's really like you need to kind of let go of that and understand that it's really about giving voice to the land and giving voice to, to, to these stones as, as well. And that's part of that is like, I think just understanding that that you have to seed control like and that was that was a, a big kind of thing for me to learn in the process There was like a really interesting like period of time between like the instruments being complete and finished and, and set up and whilst I was creating the the soundscape that plays in the space and throughout the process of, of, of you know, the instruments being built, um, you know, there's things that I was learning about how they how how i felt that they they should be played but um really when it kind of that two weeks was like of kind of working on the soundscape was really a process of like almost like developing like a set of techniques or repertoire like really kind of just trying to dive in and 
you know understand like how to produce sound out of out of these instruments but um we also had a day where a, a couple of musicians came in um and they played on the instruments you know having having not you know seen them before and the way they approached the instruments was really different to me so when it kind of came to having you know performers performing the instruments um i think it was like quite eye-opening to see how they'd um the way they played the instruments was in in some ways like quite different to the way that i played the instruments so i approach the instruments and i think that has a lot to do with you know the fact that these instruments they're new and they've only just kind of really they have they don't have a repertoire to them or they don't have any kind of set technique it's more just like um yeah it they're so like large and like present in a space and as a player you really have to like almost like it's like really a, a quite a bodily experience um so and everyone's body's different and the way everyone you know approaches their their physicality is really different so kind of makes sense that the way that they would approach those instruments is really different you know a key feature of the work is obviously that the springs are amplifying the sound into these they're sending this vibration from the string into these drums these drum heads these membranes which yeah essentially mean that the the sound of the string can be heard but also when you flick the string or when you touch the spring sorry um it creates a like a like almost like a laser sound um which was a it's like an interesting effect but i never actually really thought of it as part of kind of being a method of reproducing a curlew call until um one of the musicians at the art gallery of south australia performance they had found that just flicking the spring created a reproduction of a certain curlew call that i really hadn't even considered that relationship a real big part of these instruments is like the relationship to the performers and i think we've been really fortunate that megan's work has like spoken to these the performers that we've had in such a like a clear way and um i think we've been very lucky that they've approached the work with such sensitivity and um, you can really hear it in their performances. The Adelaide group, you know, had significantly more direction um, and they had like prescribed kind of piece that they were playing. And then for the UNSW, um, just like a, a, a lot more kind of freedom uh, with the instrument. It just like yielded such different, different kind of performances. I'm Georgia Oatley. I'm a 
musician and producer kind of make a sort of strange breed of experimental pop. And I was asked to be involved by Brad Cameron, another musician in the ensemble, just because he thought I might be a good fit. And then after meeting with Megan, we kind of clicked on our on what she kind of wanted, I think. And, yeah, we we found a really good way to express the listening aspect of that, I think. I have never played a stringed instrument before um, in, any, in any way. So I didn't have any technical experience with like a bow or a string. So I think in a way that was of benefit to me to approach it for the first time. I didn't have any preconceived ideas of what I was meant to do. And I think that made me quite open to the way that Isha and Megan were asking us to play the instruments and to that process of kind of listening and abstracting from the sounds that the field recordings that we were given of the curly. So it kind of, yeah, I guess I didn't approach it in a way that I had approached things before except for just that slowing down and trying to make make it work. <laughs> kind of wrangling the instrument in a way like because there was no real model. Isha was the only – he had given us lots of amazing tools uh, and like little snippets and spectrograms and an amazing score – but ultimately, just you just had to spend time with the instrument to be able to understand how it operated. As we got more familiar with the instruments, which I think maybe it's important for me to say that halfway, like we'd had about two or three rehearsals when our schedule was interrupted by COVID and then there was a few many months where we we didn't know that we were going to be able to continue with the piece and it was potentially the um the exhibition would close and you know that it would it wouldn't reopen again so there was a long time where we sort of had taken our hands off of we lost control in that instance it was it was kind of up to the up to the winds and Eventually, we were told that we would be able to re-enter the space um, and restrictions were still pretty tight and it was the first outing I had had in, in, a, num- in a long time. <laughs> and um, re-entering that space with this whole new context, the work had actually collected meaning at that point, you know, with it being a death song and... There was so much going on in every way, not just with COVID, but with, you know, Black Lives Matter protests reaching new heights and a whole number of things going on that had that had sort of snowballed into us being in that space and suddenly this work was this whole new experience because yeah, it was like a re-engaging with society for me and 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 it was such a beautiful space to like channel that energy and reconnect with that process of just slowing down. And so as we, well, as I re-engaged with the instrument, it was ultimately, I I don't know if I would use the word control because I think 
it ultimately came down to a, a surrender to the the intention of the work and yeah like the intention and the process of listening and i think the other musicians we would talk about this it was almost a process of getting out of the way and just doing doing the work we it wasn't about us given a set of recordings of the different sounds that the Curlum makes and mostly when we got into the space we would play one of those sounds and try and mimic it as best we could. we go around as a group and just do that th- through all of the sounds and see what's the closest we could find and just kind of sort of quote-unquote jam on that. And what was really important, I think, was we had to find the kind of, like, the relationship between the instruments because some were naturally more upfront or uh, had more clarity. So when we began to think about the sonic landscape, I think that's when things started to really click for us because some of the instruments were as if their curly was in the in the distance, say like a field across and some were right at the forefront and it's like the first curly you hear and the instrument that I was playing, which is sort of resemblant of an upright bass, that became like almost a harmony for the for those and then there was a, the other two kind of became more almost tectonic instruments, like they were of the earth and of the space around. So once we started conceptualising of the sounds in this kind of sonic landscape of the habitat of the curlew, things started to change for us and I think we were able to work a bit better together. I'm pretty sure Isha encouraged us to kind of form our own relationship with the instrument beyond the instructions because they were, they were just suge- almost just suggestions and I, I really liked Isha's way of communicating there because obviously they had quite an intimate relationship with these objects. They were like, so they were almost handing over this baby that he, that Megan and Isha had sort of formed and we were kind of like just learning how to approach it in a in a way that made sense for us. And what was quite cool about that was we all, we all chose an instrument and we there was no like disagreements and then when we told Isha, Isha was like, I knew you guys would choose those ones. Like it all kind of fell into place in a really nice way. We were just drawn to the specific ones. So it, it, it always kind of felt like everything was just making making sense. So we would just explore them as we saw fit and just try and 
I talked about surrender before, but you did. You really had to wrangle the instruments to try and, like, you know, pull these strings. And, you know, there's this almost fear that the string is going to snap. And and there was moments where things might come a little bit loose or something and you would be pulling it and trying to get this cry out of this instrument. And it would there – there was, like, a palpable tension of, like – how is this instrument going to respond? And it would change. It would change. Improvising in no matter what circumstance involves a lot of listening, and hopefully <laughs> um, for me it always has. And I come from a background of kind of doing a lot of improv, improvisation and making things up. And, and I think we all kind of found a really nice way to meet on taking things slowly. In fact, I think we would almost do things too slowly. We had to eventually shrink the performance to 12 minutes, but we were imagining we could do it for three hours. So, Because the score that Isha gave us was, it was beautiful and um, sort of open, open. You could have done that for days probably if you had a stool maybe. But um, yeah, we I had to find a way where I could take in the information and slow right down because there are moments where the score kind of peaks and we knew that was coming, but we had to find a way to just slowly interact with each other. And and it was actually very organic and the score kind of allowed for that as well. And just the time to hold tight and just like add where you, add where it came. It became about, yeah, it was about listening and it just came through feeling. It, it was very it was very organic. Listening back, it was really interesting. I mean, playing the piece, it was a bit of an endurance task. Even though it was only 12 minutes in the end, we often when we played it would be playing it many times or for a f- few hours at least and... I mean, there's so many minute sounds, like your feet on the gravel. So you'd be standing and you'd try and not shift your feet too much or, you know, or you would shift your feet and then you would sort of lean into it and you became so hyper aware of all those sounds. But, yeah, my my legs and it was like a phys- – it was physically demanding. So looking back without uh, well, without being able to feel that in my body, it was it was nice to kind of just – observe it 
maybe as an audience member looking back. I'm Sonia Hollowell. I'm a vocalist and a writer, composer and a teacher. And um, I sort of work uh, largely with improvised modes these days. Um, but my background is in sort of um, like classical singing and like a lot of sacred music and stuff like that. And so I got an email from Jose de Silva, who's the director of UNSW Galleries, asking me if I would be interested in um, performing in a Sydney iteration of the work. And he also asked me if I wanted to put a team of four players together. Um, so he just left that up to me to go choose another three people to play with. They were people um, that I had personally played with before that I knew were really good improvisers, um, but the four of us hadn't all played together before, but I had played with each of them um, at various times um, so I could vouch for them being good at what they do, yeah. And that ended up being um, Jonathan Hollowell, who's actually my dad, and Nikki Johnson, who's a percussionist, and Melanie Herbert, who's a sound artist, um, and she also plays in Splinter Orchestra. So, yeah, some of my favourite people. How we approached it initially was um, we familiarised ourselves with the documentation that already existed around the project, including um, the performance of the Adelaide iteration um, and also Isha's instructions yeah. as well. So, yeah, we got, just got familiar with that and then, like, before our first rehearsal. And then when we arrived, we just, we, we each sort of gravitated towards a particular instrument within the installation and then and just spent some time familiarising ourselves with each of the instrument's capabilities um, and um, trying to get some of that technique down for... Um, 
for creating those bird call sounds. It became about trying to build a composition that had some structure and some sections, um, but that still allowed us to feel like we were improvising in the moment and that no two performances would be able to be the same. So through our experimentation with the instruments, um, we landed upon, you know, how we felt we wanted to begin, how we felt we wanted to end, um, and then different sections that we thought would be nice, and then how to transition between those sections as well. See, we were trying to achieve what we heard in the instructional videos and mm. what we heard from the Adelaide performance, which were, you know, very quite, uh, quote, unquote, effective sounding bird sounds, bird call sounds. And um, we were trying to recreate those sounds. Um, but actually, I think... Um, you know, because of the fact that things had changed, things had moved with the instrument and, um, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily offering up the same scope um, that perhaps the previous performers had to create really distinct. So, so yeah, some, some strings were, I guess, more effective at producing those sounds than others. But we just, you know, we didn't see that as any kind of a hindrance or a limitation. We actually just worked with what we had and decided that, okay, this is going to be quite a different performance to what we've heard in the past. Like we can't actually recreate anything that we've heard from Adelaide um, because the instruments aren't necessarily offering up the same potential. But, uh, for example, the instrument that my um, dad, Jonathan, was on actually um, had a lot of scope for... Um, percussive play so um, actually um, abandoning the bowing and using a different part of the bow perhaps to to hit some of the metal that was part of that instrument the instrument had actually been mm -hmm. designed to offer up different pitches in doing that so yeah that was something that um, Jonathan really enjoyed exploring actually like the, the really percussive um potential of his particular instrument that he was on. When I found out I was only really um, expected to bow the instruments, I still, I knew that 
integrating my voice was something I definitely wanted to try at some point because I think I thought in my head it felt like it could potentially be really effective sonically mm. but also conceptually obviously it just felt quite like yeah. a natural thing to do um but I didn't actually play with that until sort of the end part of our rehearsing because I wanted to prioritise actually getting familiar with the instruments um, and just bowing in general, which was very new <laughs> for me, um, and trying to get these sort of bird call sounds down a bit. So, yeah, once we had that down and I got familiar with the textural sort of landscape that we were going to be creating then it was very easy for me to know um, how and where to incorporate my voice. I had a few aims. I definitely didn't want to be too literal with either sounding yeah. like a bird or sounding like a, a crying baby or a wailing woman. Um, so I, I knew the voice needed to be in there, but I didn't want, to, I didn't want it to be sort of literal in, in any way. And I also, I really felt like I didn't want the voice to sit on top of the texture, which is, you know, often what you'll hear with, uh, you know, a vocal part will kind of sit on top of things. But I really mm. wanted to bury my voice in the texture and it, like embed it in. And I wanted to think of my vocalizations as actually being integrated with my bowing so that the bowing gesture and the vocalization were actually one single gesture. So what I did with my voice was just an extension of what I was already doing with the bow. Mm -hmm. And actually this sort of came from one of the instructions in Isha's um, set of instructions for approaching this work, um, which was to match the length and volume of your bowed notes to the contour of your exhalations. So this is where they were talking about breathing, you know, inhalations and exhalations. And there was this one instruction to, you know, as you exhale to bow um, in a very similar way, in a very integrated way. So how, however long you're exhaling for, you sort of bow for that same length. So essentially what I did with my um, vocalizations in the piece were just an extension of that where instead of just exhaling as I bowed, I would actually sing a note. So I, I pretty much would imitate whatever my bow was doing so there were two there were two sections where I decided I wanted to add my voice I didn't want to have it in there the whole time but the first section was closer to the beginning of the piece and that was pretty much just that I would just do the occasional sort of bird call kind of attempt <laughs> and um, I would just get my voice to double it really so it would match the same length of the bowing gesture um, and the same pitch. And then the second um, sort of vocal part was right at the end where we'd built up all this sort of really frenetic energy and things were really loud and, and full on. I was doing the same thing. I was bowing very differently, like in a very frenetic, intense kind of way. And so, again, my voice would just, I just doubled that. And that's what allowed me to actually integrate the voice with the, with the bowing um, because I was on the same pitch and doing the same stuff rhythmically that um, you couldn't really separate the two out. So I wanted to 
leave the audience wondering a bit, um, you know, is that a voice or isn't it? Because I think that also would work towards leaving them with a bit of a haunted sort of feeling that I felt um, was conceptually fitting. What we ended up feeling that we accomplished at the end of this was that we we feel that we captured a sense of the Bushstone Kogu sounds, but also we feel that we or we hope that we captured the sort of more the emotional weight of the the destruction and trauma aspects of the sort of the heavy hand of industry upon country because there is an emotional there is a really intense emotional weight to this work conceptually and it's not that we necessarily set out to do this but I think in hindsight we feel like we were hopefully able to evoke all of that through this particular interpretation it wasn't a hard thing to unlock from the instruments either because the instruments were already asking to be explored you know they they were already so Mm. pregnant with all of this like textural timbral scope yeah so it it really wasn't a hard thing to unlock all of these different tone colors and um techniques and things because it yeah it was already sort of there waiting to be played
This recording was produced by Mara Schrettweger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more, head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.